Davina Fankhauser is a former fertility patient who co-founded the national nonprofit Fertility Within Reach in 2010. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Welcome to Fertility Cafe. Today, I'm excited to introduce a guest, Davina Fankhauser. Davina Fankhauser is a former fertility patient who co-founded the national nonprofit Fertility Within Reach in 2010. She has participated in and led strategic efforts to access fertility benefits from 2005 to present. She has organized multiple IRB research projects to create evidence-based communication material to support advocacy. Davina has co-authored legislation and lobbied at the state level in Washington, D.C., as well as with the insurance industry. She was directly involved with new and updated laws in Connecticut, Colorado, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, and Rhode Island. Davina is considered an expert within the infertility community, has contributed to national media, speaks at professional and patient conferences, and works collaboratively for the ultimate goal of helping the underserved access insurance coverage. She trains and empowers people to advocate for fertility benefits via their employer, insurer, and legislators. Welcome, Davina. Thanks for joining us on Fertility Cafe today. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. So we have a lot to talk about. So let's just jump right in. Um, so first, I'm curious of, you know, obviously we have the introduction, but kind of wanted to hear directly from you just a little bit about yourself. Um, and then we'll go into um, why you created Fertility Within Reach. So would you mind sharing a bit about yourself? Um, I would be happy to. Uh, I was an infertility patient for many years. We never had employer-sponsored insurance benefits. And it actually took me 12 years to have my daughter. And then, yeah, 12 years. And she was our fourth IVF cycle. And, And then my son came two years later with our sixth IVF cycle. Oh my gosh. Both. Um, my daughter was born one month early. Uh, my son was born three months early. And there's a little bit of a story to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had a history of I had endometriosis. My ex husband, he had male factor infertility. Um, and I, once he had a surgery, I was able to get pregnant, but I kept miscarrying. Um, And then after many years, um, I stopped getting pregnant as often as I had. Um, So I actually have a history of 10 pregnancies. Um, I have two kids to show for it. Oh, my God. Um, It was yeah, really overwhelming. Um, What we did with our IVF cycles for the the, um, second and third IVF cycle we did genetic testing to try to figure out why we would continue to miscarry. And um, it turned out that a lot of the uh, embryos were genetically abnormal. 
by the time I'm doing this, I'm like only 31, 32. And so as we moved forward with treatment, we were like, okay, we'll do the genetic testing. But again, this is all out of pocket. And thank mm-hmm. goodness we were really great savers. We didn't go on vacations. We camped for vacations and all of our money was saved up for fertility treatment or retirement, which we cashed into as mm-hmm. well to try to afford this. What we found out though is when we couldn't afford to keep doing the genetic testing, but we wanted to optimize our chances of success, we just transferred all of our embryos. And How many my were you transferring daughter, at a time? You know what? I'm afraid to say because I'm very open about who my clinic was. <laughs> I don't. They've changed their policy since then. Let me just well, say this. I, yeah, they but have changed all of them, though. Yeah, that's all of them. Because when I right. first did my surrogacy journey, my first transfer, they transferred three embryos. And my second, they transferred four. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will tell you, this is an exclusive. <laughs> so, um, so Our first exclusive. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so when I had mentioned the majority of our embryos in our previous, again, our second and third IVF cycle, 75% were genetically abnormal. Uh, and when we went to the clinic for our fourth, fifth, and sixth cycle, I was producing more um, embryo or more follicles. Hmm. And so we ended up getting more embryos. And the idea was I was just going to transfer them all because we couldn't afford to do the genetic testing, knowing that 75% or 50 to 75% would be abnormal. I really thought it was 75% given the, the, our history. So with my daughter, we transferred seven. Mm-hmm. We transferred all seven. Um, and this was before Octomom. Mm-hmm. But we transferred all seven and she started as a, a twin and then it was a vanishing twin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just, we had her and which she was just our miracle baby. Right. And then after I had my daughter, we waited a year and then I tried again. And this time I only had four embryos and we transferred them all. And I became pregnant with a singleton but miscarried and we did genetic testing and we found out that one embryo that, you know, implanted was a Down syndrome male and, and it just stopped growing. Um, so then when we tried um, our sixth cycle, I once again had seven embryos and I just said, transfer them all because Mm -hmm. we just did four and none of them worked. So Mm -hmm. just transfer them all. And, um, and I was bleeding a lot and I went and they were like, Oh, you're pregnant. You know, here's, here's one, but I still kept bleeding a lot. So I went back and they do an ultrasound and they were like, Oh, you have twins. Oh. And I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. And then I was bleeding a lot and I went back and they were like, you have triplets. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going back. (laughs) You know, I don't want to find any more. And there were none others, but it was terrifying, but also, you know, so joyful until about 10 weeks, I went to the OBGYN 
and my cervix had already started to thin mm. um, carrying the triplets. So we met with four different specialists you know, almost trying to find somebody who wouldn't say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were like, you you really should reduce because you're likely going to lose everything. And that's a very difficult decision to do when all you want to do is have kids, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So what we decided to do was we went and saw a specialist who would do genetic testing on the three because I was convinced not all three are going to continue to grow. Just like with my daughter, we had that vanishing twin, you know, they're not, but by 12 weeks, they were still going. Um, And we ended up doing the genetic testing and one didn't survive the genetic testing. And then there were two remaining and the doctor um, really suggested that we just have one to, to have a chance of having anything survive. Um, and so we did, we, we reduced one and it, it left my son. Now my son was born three weeks, uh, three months early. Um, even though we, we took these precautions, which really showed if we had tried to keep twins or triplets, they just would not have survived. Um, but he was a little miracle because he had issues, but everything, all of his problems in the NICU kind of resolved itself. But the, the issue is he was so small, he was considered disabled. So he received state insurance, which basically covered all of our out-of-pocket expenses. We would have had to pay. Um, he's had multiple surgeries since he was born. He has an IEP for attention, which is very common with premature babies. So we, we were basically the walking reason of why you want insurance benefits. So people aren't crazy and desperate like I was mm-hmm. and transfer everything that you have. Um, you know, we, I'm, I'm so lucky to have the kids I have, but I feel a lot of guilt. I feel, I just felt so much frustration and anger that it didn't need to be this way. Mm-hmm. It just didn't need to be this way. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I was still working in this field anyway. Before I had my daughter, I was working for Resolve National. Then I, after I had my kids, I started as the advocacy director for Resolve New England. They're a separate entity. Um, even though they partially share a name uh, or a word. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but what what I found when I was their advocacy director is I lobbied to update the definition of infertility in Massachusetts. And it was so hard, it, despite any resources that were out there. And there really weren't a lot of resources out there. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to advocate to pass legislation felt just overwhelming. And so after the bill passed and Resolve New England had decided at the time that advocacy wasn't going to be their priority, I just decided that I needed to find a way to make this easier for other people because I knew there were other people who would want to advocate. I didn't want what happened to us to happen to anyone else 
And so I decided to take all the strategies and information I learned and create a nonprofit that would help people gain benefits. And the way that I did it that I thought was a little bit different from other organizations, you know, when I used to work for Resolve National, they kind of had the approach of, you know, well, we'll find out, you know, what, what do our members think? What do our members feel? And kind of base their strategies off of that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I didn't really feel that that was enough to convince um, an employer or a legislator. And so we did, um, it's called IRB research. We work with universities and conduct this like high level educational research. Um, and we'd ask, we, one um, student, graduate student I worked with in health communications, we interviewed employers, legislators, and insurers and asked them, what information do you need to support IVF benefits and what format do you want it in? And they told us, and we created the Policymakers Guide to Fertility Health Benefits, which I've updated through the years um, because everything has changed so much from the time that I was in treatment. And I'm sure you can say the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The advances in cryopreservation yep. And, yep. and all of this. Um, so... We update this guide and we use it as a tool. We let patients use it, other professionals use it. Um, and it's this resource that when an employer looks through it or every time a legislator looks through it, they're like, this is fantastic. And employers are like, oh, this has all the information we need to see that offering benefits is affordable. Yeah, it's kind of presenting information to them it's the exact information they want and it's in a format that we've tested out and we know to be effective and so that is i think why we tend to kind of experience success after success in the different endeavors we take on and we try to make it you know possible and then patients are being successful, getting their employers to add benefits and, and communicating with their legislators or writing an insurance appeal. Mm -hmm. So it's been really um, a transformation of the organization to really meet the patient needs because what we found out was not everybody felt like advocating. So we created a section on our website called Financial Assistance helping people figure out their options to afford the treatment if they don't want to go after benefits. So um, I love this organization. I love what we do and the people we end up working with and supporting. Um, so I'm just really proud of Fertility Within Reach. And you, as you should be, as you should. Yeah. So I'm going to step back and kind of go into a couple of things. So. First, is it is it now what thirteen states that require um, fertility coverage through benefits? I can't remember how exactly right. how many well, states. So there is a difference between um, infertility, like an infertility law, 
or a law with IVF benefits. Okay. So um, there are more states with IVF, I mean, with infertility law, uh, infertility laws, okay, Mm -hmm. which I believe is 19. So let me just double check on that. I'm so sorry. Because sometimes I get my numbers um, mixed up and I want to make sure I give you the most accurate information. So I believe it was, it's 19 because I include um, Utah and I'll explain. So it's 19 states that do have an infertility law, which has some form of benefit, but it is 13 states that include IVF coverage. Okay. Okay. So um, like an example of an infertility law would include Utah. Utah has a law that says for three years, we're going to test this thing out that employers who offered $4,000 towards adoption now also have to make that $4,000 available for fertility treatment if people want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. So that's an infertility law, but it didn't provide IVF benefits. So that's, that's the difference. Okay. And then for the states that have the IVF benefits, it's specifically that they, the employer must pay for if they need it in IVF journey. Yes and no. Okay. So there are a couple of states that are a mandate to offer, and then there are states that are a mandate to cover. Out of the 13, two of them, Texas and California, are a mandate to offer. That means the insurance company has to offer benefits to the employer to pick up, but the employer does not have to offer those infertility or IVF benefits. A mandate to cover says the insurance provider or carrier has to offer those benefits to the employer and the employer must offer them to their employees. And there is a federal law. It's an employment law under um, the Department of Labor. The acronym is um, ERISA, say it as ERISA. Mm -hmm. And ERISA says that if you are a small business or if you are self-insured, you are not subject to health mandate benefits in your state, mandated benefits. So you don't have to provide those. So an example is, and my ex-husband worked for Bed Bath & Beyond. Bed Bath & Beyond was self-insured they did not offer fertility benefits. Self-insured means they pay for all the medical costs themselves, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm just one person who is from, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond. But if they think about it and, and there's, you know, one out of six couples experiencing infertility, can you imagine how many people work for mm-hmm. Bed Bath & Beyond who are experiencing infertility? Mm-hmm. And I was just one person who ended up costing them more than a million dollars in healthcare. I bet they look back and go, huh, maybe we should have reimbursed for that IVF cycle. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe yep. offering those benefits would have been a good idea. Yeah. Um, because it would have saved them a lot of money. And I, and I think that's what a lot of people miss. 
is that just because you offer this, you know, fertility care that they might think that it's just going to cost them way more money when in actuality, it actually is saving yeah. them money, saving them money from people yeah. that are, because I know I can't afford to do it again, let's do these multiple embryo transfers. And then, which means that we're going to have premature okay. babies, not always, but more than likely. And then yeah. that means yeah. that these babies are going to have to be in NICU. And because they are now my children and I right. am on your insurance plan, you also have to cover them as well. Yeah. And you know, it's, I, I used to always say, you know, really, it's between the doctor and the patient, how many embryos you transfer. And, mm-hmm. and I still feel that way. Mm-hmm. And I understand a person's deep desire to want to transfer more than one embryo. Um, but when I do talk to people, just from my experience, I really encourage people not to if they can avoid it. Mm-hmm. If they can afford to not do multiples, that is my recommendation to them only because, you know, I've seen in my son's eyes how frustrated he is with his ADHD, mm-hmm. you know, or how uncomfortable he's been after having to have a surgical procedure. Like it just, it tears at me each time. And I think, oh, maybe if I, if I had transferred fewer embryos and maybe if he wasn't born as early as he was, you know, could things have been different for him? You know, did I cause this? And that's something I always have to live with. I try to forgive myself for it. You know, I made the best decisions I could at the time for our family or, you know, my ex-husband and I did, but in, in retrospect, not, having thought of that perspective when I was a patient, I try to just share that so so people do consider it Mm -hmm. um, when they're going forward. Because I think if they, if they thought about there is such a likelihood of a negative outcome and what that might look like or how that might feel that perhaps um, they would make decisions based on medical recommendations and not, financial concerns. Well, and I think sometimes people just, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think that that is the biggest concern for the majority is it is a financial concern. Just like you had mentioned when you were going through it and you really wanted a test, but couldn't, um, you know, maybe a lot of that would, like you said, would have been avoided. So a lot of it is, yes, I agree. Absolutely. It really should be up to the patient and the physician who's treating that patient to ultimately make that decision. But I also feel though that, um, you know, the insurance companies or the employers need to start looking at the whole big picture and stop just thinking it's fertility care and it must be expensive. So therefore we're going to say no. Exactly. Exactly. And that's something that we have you know, I, I received quotes from some insurers um, regarding um, coverage that I included in the policymaker's guide. And we have one that came from um, Optum Insurance. And they said, quote, 
Multiples are more likely to require long stays in the neonatal intensive care unit, which increases costs. It's important for employers and health plans to connect the dots between the cost of infertility benefit and the significant savings on the maternity and neonatal side. And, and that's absolutely the case. It, we have a quote from Aetna. Um, Aetna offered a program where um, in a state, uh, Connecticut, when um, they had so many cycles available to them, right? In Connecticut, it's a, a limited number of cycles. But Aetna said, if you do a single embryo transfer in your first two cycles, and you don't get results, we'll give you an additional two cycles and you don't have to stick with the single embryo transfer, right? Mm. And um, it is showing that it dra dramatically reduced the rates of twins and multiple births mm. um, in the, with, um, within their, um, I don't know, uh, clientele consumers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they work with. I guess that's the word, consumers. Mm -hmm. So I think that insurers are starting to catch on. Um, when I co-authored legislation with Resolve New England, and then um, we advocated for those benefits and lobbied for those benefits in New Hampshire, um, we ended up sitting down with the insurance carriers in New Hampshire to negotiate uh, language for the law, and which ended up being a very good thing to do um, because when the bill went to the House or the Senate, there was no opposition from the insurance carriers or when it went to the governor's desk because they were a part of drafting a bill that would be a win-win, a win for the consumers, actually a, a, a triple win win for the consumers, a win to the state, and a win to the insurers. So they, they were managing those costs, mm -hmm. and, um, and it ended up being a positive, it's a positive outcome for everybody involved. So I think insurers are starting to come around. Yeah. So how many, how many um, states have you helped make a change in so far? Mm. That's a good question. I should check my bio. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to think about this. So Massachusetts, in Maine, back in 2011, they chose not to pick up infertility benefits at that time. But for the first time, they allowed residents of the state of Maine to purchase insurance plans outside of the state. So they could purchase non-group plans in Massachusetts and get infertility benefits. Um, they, I don't think that's an option anymore because the Massachusetts insurers said, never mind, no, you have to be a resident here. Mm -hmm. But, um, but uh, that's why we're going back to Maine to work on legislation in this next session. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that was a positive change in Maine and people were able to access benefits. I'm going to count Maine. So Massachusetts, Maine, I'd say Rhode Island, Connecticut. Um, I provided language for legislation in Florida and Colorado. 
I'm currently working back in Connecticut right now to update their definition um, of who's eligible for coverage and the benefits to include third parties like donor egg, donor sperm, and gestational carriers and surrogacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also working in Tennessee right now mm-hmm. um, with legislation for that state. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight states. Okay. Well, technically seven states. Um, I've also co-authored legislation in Massachusetts right now for fertility preservation. Um, so some of these states are a repeat. Oh, yeah. and I didn't include New Hampshire. So well, And New York, right? And New Jersey? Oh, yes, I did help in New York <laughs> and I did help in New Jersey. See, I need to check my uh I need to check my bio. Yep. So yep. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten states. Yep. And then I've advocated at the federal level as well. Yeah. Which, and it's so needed, and obviously it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of um, grit, I think, um, and being able to just, even though you hear no, and it's just like, no, this is too important to not push through and keep on going, eventually somebody will say yes. Um, Which brings me to my next question. So if someone wants to approach their employer, about adding insurance benefits for fertility treatments, you know, to the company insurance plan, like what's, what's the most important points that they need to make in order to even begin? Like, where do they even start? Well, um, I think they need to start by um, learning a little bit about their own company So most um, employees don't know if their company is fully insured or self-insured. Fully insured would mean that when you provide benefits, you, um, let's say I'm the employer and I um, work with, I pay Blue Cross Blue Shield to manage all the claims, but I've also paid a substantial amount that they pay the claims. Right? So that type of cost to the insurer is more upfront because you're, you're paying a higher fee. So the insurance carrier will also pay for those medical expenses. A self-insured company, uh, if I was self-insured, I would hire the insurance company to manage all of the claims, but I would be paying for all of those healthcare expenses. Mm, okay. So, and it's, it's important to know that because I tend to think self-insured companies can be more reasonable mm. than the fully insured. I mean, it can go both ways, right? Fully insured, it can, it can work, but I think understanding what type of company you're dealing with, what type of expenses that the um, employer is going to look at um, matters when you approach them. Kind of understanding a little bit of the process as well. So I once met with the corporate office, TJX. TJX, they own TJ Maxx, 
Marshall's Home Goods, Sierra Trading Post, and no, this is not a paid advertisement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for them. But when I went to talk to them about the benefits that they offer, um, they, oh, there was, um, they offered only so much amount. They, uh, it's like a $15,000 lifetime maximum. Mm-hmm. And so it, it became more of a discussion of, well, why, what made you choose that number? And they said, well, that was the number recommended to us by a broker. And we were told it was two IVF cycles. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> actually, that's barely enough for one. Mm-hmm. And since you have employees around the country, you need to understand that there's a health disparity amongst your employees because the cost of treatment varies from state to state. So what might be one full cycle in one state isn't even enough for a full cycle in New York. So it's really an opportunity to educate them. And then you provide supportive information. Um, It's helpful to kind of go in knowing not just how many employees the HR has, um, but when I sat down with their head of benefits, we went, okay, let's do the math. There are this many employees, but only out of all the employees, this many have benefits, are utilizing benefits. And of those utilizing benefits, only this many are of reproductive age, right? So the number keeps going down. And then you're like, okay, but then we need to look at, you know, one and, you know, figuring out the statistics of how many of those employees might actually experience infertility. And then we know that only 3% of people experience infertility actually need IVF, which is the most expensive. So then we just keep you know, whittling that number down, Mm -hmm. um, it's still fairly expensive. But then when you say, okay, but without it, and you have twins and you have triplets, this is the cost of a pregnancy through birth for singletons. And this is what it is with multiples and triplets. Mm -hmm. So without the security of having more, um, knowing that there are more cycles available to you, you still feel a desperation if you have one cycle or maybe even two cycles. There is still this, okay, well, if this one chance doesn't work, then on my next chance, I'm going to transfer everything. Um, So when we make a recommendation to employers, we always say no less than four. It doesn't mean that all four cycles will be used. But what it means is that it takes off that emotional pressure. Mm-hmm. So they can make the decision based on finances. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of balances out. And then the sooner that treatment is available, that means patients can often do something that isn't necessarily requiring the higher technology option. You know, it, when I was first diagnosed with infertility, I was married young. Um, I was 23. If, if I had had any funding to help us do IUIs mm. or to figure out why I was miscarrying, I had an undiagnosed 
blood clotting disorder. But those sort of things would have saved money for everybody in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sooner you can access timely and appropriate health care, the less expensive the cost will be in the end. Yep. So these are types of things that, you know, you, you can share. Um, we had already talked about potential cost savings, but then there's also this why to provide coverage which they they want to know what similar companies are offering similar benefits. You know, who else is doing it? Um, and one of the reasons they want to know this is because they want to be able to recruit and retain talent, mm-hmm. right? The, to get these great employees. And there's this trend, there was recently... Um, a survey done by uh, Willis Towers and Watson. And they are like a brokerage firm and provide options for the Fortune 500 to the Fortune 1000 companies. And what they found is that more organizations are recognizing the importance of family-friendly benefits, such Mm -hmm. as fertility treatments. And that over the last three years, 59% 59% of their employees, the employers they work with are doing this. And over the next three years, they believe that's going to be 77%. Wow. And the reasons they do it is to recruit and retain. Like I mentioned, that's what 72% of them said why they were doing it. Um, 65% said offering these benefits aligned with their corporate strategy or mission. 65% said it it supported the organization's inclusion and diversity goals. And um, 44% wanted it to be um, a reason for them to receive recognition as a best place to work. And then we had some that just felt it was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. is what they found which is really um, significant. Mm-hmm. And you know, some, of the, some of these companies had a lifetime limit and some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. So everybody varied. But if you're meeting with, like for example, a TJX, then you look at what other co- companies are similar to theirs that are offering the benefits What benefits are they offering? So you have to do a little bit of research before Mm -hmm. you go and talk to your employer about all of this. Um, Do you you think it's realistic that, you know, an average person can do it on their own or does it take, you know, someone like you, a professional to help them to navigate that process? No, let me tell you, this is, I, I think some people are born to advocate. Some people can just do this on their own and they do. And then there are other people who could use some guidance, some resources. Um, They don't have the time to do the research and that sort of thing. And this is something that we help with. I helped um, a woman in New Hampshire. You know, her um, school district was self-insured. And so I helped prep her 
for a meeting with the committee at the school district that decided on health benefits. And so she was fully prepared. And afterwards, her response was, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Mm. She expected there to be a little bit of a, a difficulty or a battle for them to um, do coverage. And there just wasn't, which was really exciting for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that um, I think people are really nervous about it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't good chances. It's just their anxiety mm-hmm. that tends to make them feel a little, um, what, what do you call it, apprehensive mm-hmm. to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a woman who was in charge of um, benefits at True Green. It's a a company um, based out of Tennessee. And True Green actually gave us a a quote that we can use when we're advocating in Tennessee. They said, quote, at True Green, we strive to build benefits programming that supports the diverse needs of all of the individuals who enroll in our plan offering. Infertility coverage is just one way we hope to support our associates as they balance their goals and dreams in both their personal and professional lives. So I think we are seeing that more companies are offering this. Mm -hmm. It's our responsibility, though, to help educate them what the best type of um, benefit plans are. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, like the TJX who offered the 15000 thinking it would cover two IVF benefits. It's really talking to them about the scope of coverage should include the diagnosis of infertility, fertility care, such as IVF, and fertility preservation. And I'm not talking fertility preservation just for cancer patients. This should be available to everybody with a need, such as someone with premature ovarian failure or polycystic ovarian syndrome, or maybe they have a genetic disposition like the BRCA gene and they want to preserve their fertility so they can have a hysterectomy sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And we recommend that um, we educate employers to offer a minimum of four IVF cycles and do a cycle amount rather than a dollar amount Mm. because that dollar amount creates that disparity mm-hmm. amongst the employees. And it's not just from state to state. Let's say somebody needs to do, you know, ICSI or assisted hatching or genetic testing because they have a history of miscarriage. That increases the dollar amount significantly compared to somebody else. So that, that dollar limit may not cover one full cycle where it will for another if they're even if they're at the same clinic. So we want to try to reduce disparity. So we go by 
number of cycles. Mm -hmm. And then always medication is a necessary part of treatment, the treatment protocol. So that needs to be included with the benefits. And, you know, I'm a strong believer in everybody who needs to receive health care um, should receive the health care. So that's going to be providing coverage for those who need third-party reproduction to be a part of their health care plan. And um, I was that they actually, have benefits as well. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you that next is, so what about for people who need to use help from an egg donor or a gestational carrier? Is there any benefits that could help them or is there anything that they could do to try to see if they can help get benefits for that? Well, absolutely. I mean, they, they can ask for it um, and, and do a little bit of educating. I think what's really important for employees to remember is um, this isn't necessarily an employer choosing to um, exclude anyone. They're making business decisions off of finances based, based off of the information that they're hearing or receiving. And if we aren't taking the opportunity to provide them with accurate information and providing them resources, they don't really know that what they're offering isn't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. You know, TJX was shocked to learn that $15,000 didn't cover two IVF cycles. Um, but I was able to show them the average cost according to ASRM. Um, so it, it really is about taking the opportunity to have a, having a conversation. There's, a, there's one woman who, and I'm not saying everybody should do this, but they're very conservative. They're a very, very conservative person. And um, I fully believe in a person's uh, right to choose. I think when you are um, choosing about reproduction, it also includes how um, you can become pregnant. So interfering with a person's um, choice regarding their reproduction that can put a threat to everything, including how to build your family. So what I wanted to um, say is that this woman was against abortion, but she found that her employer's insurance plan covered abortion. And so she went to the employer and said, look, if we are going to cover something like an abortion. Can we please have coverage for something that is pro-family to help people have children Mm -hmm. and have some infertility benefits? And the employer said, you know what? You're right. And, And so they added benefits for fertility treatment. Now, again, I'm not, I, I just want to go on record representing fertility within reach. We totally support a person's choice over their reproductive health and everything that that entails because um, it does include 
the choice to build a family and how you build your family. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that was a communication between an employee and the employer. Mm-hmm. And so I think every conversation is going to be different. You have to be prepared with what information they want to hear. They want to hear who else is offering it. What are some you know, plans that similar companies are offering? What do they need as, a, as an employee? Um, and we say, take advantage of that opportunity to really try to educate them and provide them resources like our policymakers guide or any information that's public from Willis Towers and Watson um, that they can use when they're speaking with their employer. Okay. Does that Um, answer your question? It does. It does. And you have shared so much information. Like my eyes are, literally coming out of my head. No, this is amazing (laughs) because I'm even thinking, you know, within my own state of, you know, who can I rally together for us to, um, you know, obviously given waiting until after the election and all of that other stuff and new legislation um, or, but a new session rather of, what can we do to help make the change? It's like, you know, everybody needs to kind of get out of their comfort zone um, and come together because unfortunately the infertility community is a very large community. Um, A lot of people don't speak about it, but it's a very large community. So I really feel like if we um, start making a bigger noise um, and start making it known that this is needed and these are the benefits and these are what's out there and this is what can be beneficial for everybody. I think that that might just help make a change, even if it's for one person. You know, so One of the things that when I'm approached by, um, by someone and they say, oh, well, how, how do I do this in my state? Um, I'll talk to them about it, but I also want them to learn from the successes of others. So mm-hmm. I, I was working with Colorado, with someone from Colorado at the same time that I was doing New Hampshire. And I said, you know, we, in New Hampshire, we have this Facebook page called, you know, the New Hampshire Fertility um, Advocacy page is what we had. And she had, she started something similar, Colorado Fertility Advocacy. But then there was another group called Colorado Fertility Advocates. And I encouraged her to try to merge with that other group and come together and work together. And, and you know, everybody, you know, the, the members of each Facebook group come together and, um, learn from what New Hampshire was doing and, and help them with strategizing what might work for them in Colorado. And the same thing for Tennessee. I, I said to Tennessee, hey, take a look at the fertility advocacy page in New Hampshire. Look at the one in Colorado. And they have kind of melded their own of what they thought would be best and most appropriate for Tennessee. And it's fantastic. Uh, so I'm a big believer in um, 
everybody working together and learning from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and this is really important to me. So if I know so, for example, there's an existing bill, and, and this happened uh, last year or maybe the year before. Um, there's an organization called the Alliance for Fertility Preservation. Now, they tend to do legislation that really only focuses on cancer patients or somebody who's going to lose their fertility or likely lose their fertility due to a medical treatment. I don't necessarily agree with that because I think you can have a medical existing condition that requires you to preserve and those people won't be eligible, but I can't be in every state at this time. And so I will let people know who call me, what are we going to do about this? And I say, actually, there's another organization and they're working on this. And I'm, I'm happy to give you their contact information and you can reach out to them. I'll let them know to look out for you. And, um, and so it's almost like sharing the wealth. I mean, mm-hmm. there are more than 7 million people in the United States alone that need this assistance. Mm-hmm. There is not one organization, no matter how large, there is not one organization that can handle all of those 7 million people at once. So I think the more we work together, mm-hmm. the more we um, build off of each other um, and learn from experiences and successes, uh, the stronger we will be as advocates. Well, Davina, I so appreciate your time. Um, is there any parting words that you would like to share? Yes. Um, One, I want to thank you and anybody listening because I tend to give really long answers. (laughs) No, it's very passionate. It's been wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other thing is on our website, I mentioned we have um, resources for people who don't feel up to advocating, right? Who just don't have it in them to be writing um, appeals or talking to their legislators. So that section on our website is called financial assistance. And it lists different grants and discount programs that they can apply for. There are financing fertility treatment resources that are there. And it goes into a little bit of detail. Um, There are fundraising options um, like crowdfunding. I am not uh, comfortable with crowdfunding myself, but there are some people who do it. I mean, we see it on GoFundMe. Somebody raises $50,000 in a month and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, It's unbelievable. They have the ability to do that. I would pick a different option. There was one woman who she was a, um, she worked at a bakery and she decided to hold a cupcake fundraiser on her own. And she raised $2,000 and she donated it to Fertility Within Reach, which was just amazing. There are people who can do that. One other thing I did when I first started Fertility Within Reach I used to find kind of broken down things on 
like our community free cycle online, I'd fix things up and then I'd sell them on Craigslist because this was before Facebook Marketplace. I'd sell them on Craigslist. And that's how I had the money to start the organization in the very beginning. So there are lots of ways where you can, you can um, fundraise and gain money. Um, and then we have information about IVF programs as well. So these are all options for people to consider when they are looking for how they're going to um, afford the treatment they need. Okay. And it's very much needed information too, because one of the biggest questions that I get when I'm doing consult is, I mean, how am I supposed to afford all of this? You know, um, especially when you're talking about gestational surrogacy that at this point, um, from start to finish, you're probably looking at about $150,000. Right. And I have to say, I'm just to add a personal note about that. Um, one of my best friends has cystic fibrosis and she underwent a, um, double lung transplant. And so she just celebrated her 50th birthday, which is, amazing. Mm. Um, but at one point after her transplant, she and her husband were interested in trying to start a family. And I was like, ask your doctor if I can be your surrogate. <laughs> of course, the doctor was like, no way. But I would have yes. if the doctor had allowed me. I would have done it in a heartbeat. And um, it just, it broke my heart. It still breaks my heart at the thought that they had to stop because they just couldn't afford mm -hmm. to keep trying. They did one cycle and they, they just couldn't afford to keep trying. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it just is so unfair. It's an unjust way that our healthcare works. I think there are people who, you know, it's a fundamental you know, right and desire to be able to have a family. And when you are limited because you don't have access to the healthcare benefits you need to overcome this disease of infertility or the disability you may have, it, it enrages me and it, it makes me want to work overtime every day mm -hmm. in order to make sure that we find a solution where everybody who needs fertility care has access to it. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, thank you, Davina, for, for joining us, and I really appreciate your time, and I hope that our listeners get a lot of um, good good goodies from this podcast show episode. Thank you. It's, I'm so honored you asked me to participate. I hope it's helpful to people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, 
alternative family building and making this journey your own. 